Well, hey everyone, I can't believe it. Happy New Year. It's January 1st, and this is the beginning of Season 3 of Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. Over the last couple of years, uh, we've had just an amazing array of fascinating guests, and uh, we intend to keep doing that until we run out of amazing Canadians to talk to. So uh, we'll, we'll see how long this, this podcast lasts. Uh, well, so my guest today is another Kevin. Uh, Kevin Aaron Weeb is a pastor, and uh, he grew up below the poverty line in Western Canada. Um, in his uh, book, he talks about how his mother would hunt for change in the couch to buy food for the baby. And uh, now uh, he pastors a low-resource church of mostly immigrants, and it's a congregation that transcends definitions of the helper and the helped, and it doesn't fit into any stereotype of poverty. Uh, A few years ago, he developed Povology, Pov.ology. It's a website a small group curriculum on poverty in the church, and uh, he uh, pulled together some great guests and minds in that series. Uh, Most recently, he's authored a new book entitled Faithful in Small Things, How to Serve the Needy When You're One of Them. And uh, that's something that that is good for me to read uh, because sometimes I feel like I'm just as needy as the people that I reach out to. Um, And the book uh, shows readers that writing big checks isn't the only, maybe not even the best way to alleviate poverty. It's small acts of love that change the world in Jesus' name. Uh, It's small acts of love that are a vital aspect of following Jesus. Jesus ministered to the poor even though Jesus himself was poor, and both If both those things are true of our Savior, uh, then they can be true of us too. So welcome, Kevin Weeb. Great to have you on the podcast Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah. Um, I just want to jump right into the book and and quote uh, you, if that's okay. Do you you mind listening to yourself? Uh, I used to work in radio, so I had to do a lot of that back then. So (laughs) go for it. Um, So on page uh, 71, chapter 6, the good news. When I was a child, my family and I were considered the working poor. There were many in our world poorer than us, and since my dad always worked, I never had to go to bed with an empty stomach. We were never forced to sleep outside because even when we lost our home when I was eight years old, We had family who took us in. From before I was born, my parents helped people who had nowhere to go, and we had a great many house guests, some staying for days or weeks, and others staying for months or years. I know what it is like to go without a telephone. That was rather nice, actually. There was a season when we went without indoor plumbing And for years of my upbringing, the only heat in our home through the bitter cold Canadian winters was from a wood stove. We would glean firewood from wood piles at the local lumber mills that were destined for the burner as waste, cutting up the bent and splintered logs in the evenings and on weekends. No matter how bad things got, however, we never had to go without food. We had clothes on our backs and I was keenly aware that we were more privileged than others because of how often we would encounter people in need, people who were always welcome in our home and around the table. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear more uh, about, uh, about your childhood and growing up in that environment uh, of having uh, so many uh, people in, in, in your parents' home. You know, I think a lot of people um, don't have anybody into their home. Uh, but you grew up the opposite to that. Yeah. And I don't know if there's some kind of, um, you know, uh, 
difference between the more wealth you have, the less people you have in your home, or how it works? But talk about your experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how that works, um, but I, I know that my dad had a knack for befriending people who were in need. And in in the book, I talk a lot about, like, like when you read the stories about my parents, you'd think they must be some kind of super saints, but what you got to realize is they're ordinary people uh, yeah. and they have the same brokenness that the rest of us have. And, and in some, in some ways even more than other people. Mm-hmm. But the thing about my parents is I know they love Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I know that when they read in the scriptures, they see Jesus reaching out to others. They read things when Jesus says, whatever you've done to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done for me. They read about how Jesus kind of looks at people differently instead of valuing only those with money or power. He values, you know, the little person or the person that's ignored by the rest of the world. And so that's kind of the framework that I grew up around was my parents looking for people. Well, mostly my dad. Um, It was usually my dad that would come home uh, with someone for a meal or or to, to live with us for a while. And my mom was always hospitable. She would always, uh, the, the, the joke was for years is that we just water down the soup. And so she'd, <laughs> you know, make soup. And sometimes that's what she would do is add a little more water to the soup and get out an extra um, bag of buns. And uh, we always had homemade buns because they were cheaper than buying bread at the store. So that's one of the, the benefits of that, I guess, is my mom put a lot of work into um, home-cooked meals that, that were very cost-effective. So she'd get out an extra bag of buns and um, a little more water in the soup, and then we had enough for everybody. And so we, our, our stomachs were always filled. But it was uh, one of those things that when I think about that upbringing, and e- even in um, the, the really lean years when you know we, we didn't have a furnace in the house or um, uh, no indoor plumbing. No indoor plumbing. Yeah. That, that was, yeah, for, from, uh, it was less than a year anyway. Yeah. We, we were able Thank to. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> but my family, uh, my, my wife and my children think it's, thinks it's very funny when I talk about how I, I envied my uncle's outhouse because it was nicer than ours. <laughs> <laughs> One of those peculiarities of, yeah. of my upbringing. I so, so right now I know that some people are saying, wait a second, I thought this was a, a podcast about urban ministry <laughs> in Canadian cities, but you've never been a, a city boy, but you've always mostly lived in the orbit of a city, right? Yeah. yeah. And from when I was nine to when I was 23, I believe it was. We lived in extremely rural Canada. But other than that, before then and then since then, we've uh, lived in small towns kind of in the orbit of cities. And so the people that my dad would find when we, before we lost our home, um, when we, li- we lived near Edmonton, it would mm-hmm. have been a bedroom community to Edmonton. So some of the people that came to stay with us and uh, spent some months living with our family, my dad got to know through, um, you know, he'd go to the city for parts as a mechanic or whatever. Um, and he get to know people in the city that were in need and invite them home and they'd come home with him and then, um, you know, stay with us until they got back up on their feet and then they'd move on. Your dad, was he a, a really good judge of character to know who to invite to come live in your house or, or did, uh, did, did it, was it kind of hit and miss like? As far as I've ever heard from my siblings um, and from my own experience, there were never any incidents of, of anyone um, like taking advantage of hospitality or stealing from us or those kinds of things. That, that, that I, I can't remember a single time that that would happen. Um, there, there were ground rules, of course. Um, he said never come home drunk or anything like mm-hmm. that. And uh, so someone only broke that rule once in my, in my memory. But otherwise, uh, the people were very, very respectful. And, and given the number of people that stayed with our family, and that only happened once in in my entire upbringing, yeah. you know, I, I don't know if it's my dad's character or like sometimes um, some of the people that would uh, come to visit that they, th- these people never lived with us, but they were self proclaimed thieves, mm-hmm. right? But they never ever stole from our family, and there yeah. was there was re- respect for my dad, and so then they didn't want to hurt him or his family, and and a lot of times when we think about people we 
tend to stereotype them into a certain category and we think we want to distance ourselves from these bad people but you know what boy do we ever yeah those people need love too and and often when you care for people then uh, it doesn't it doesn't always end up like what you might expect of, Mm -hmm. of people taking advantage of you yeah well i i i don't know your dad but just based on what i'm reading in in the book and what you're saying uh, I kind of think he must have had a good excrement detector, and uh, he must have been able to size up uh, a person uh, in in a few key ways to be able to say, uh, "I'm going to bring you home with me." And he must have been a, a little bit uh, courageous, you know. To it's it's interesting that uh, they didn't come looking for him he had an eye to find them it sounds like it, it definitely felt that way yeah and yeah. He, he just had a way of connecting with people that was kind of disarming in some ways where people felt comfortable yeah. around him where um i mean he's not a very judgmental person you know and yeah. so no matter who you are no matter what your criminal record says he does he views you as a person you know and that's yeah. that's an extremely valuable uh, lesson you know yeah, are your are your folks still alive? Yes, they uh, they just moved to a small town on the outskirts of Edmonton again. Ah, very good. <laughs> yeah. um, so the, you pastor in a, a little church um, uh, in Stevensville, is it? Stevenson. Uh, Stevenson. Yeah. Um, just just uh, on Lake Erie, a couple mm-hmm. miles in from Lake Erie. Yeah. Um, closest town, Tilbury. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you, you pastor a church that has a lot of, uh, Mexican Mennonites in it. Yes. So tell me a bit about, um, uh, your, uh, the Mexican Mennonites, uh, the culture, who they are and, um, what, what brings them, uh, all the way up North to the, well, southernmost part of Canada. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mexican Mennonites are an interesting group of people because you'll see them eating Russian food, you'll hear them speaking low German, and they have white skin, but they hold Mexican passports. And so um, sometimes when I talk about my congregation to people who don't know, they find this kind of um, blend of pieces of our identity um, a little bit confusing. Um, Some of it goes all the way back to the Reformation, but since since the Reformation, uh, they've they and we have been traveling from place to place, um, and during the Russian Revolution, uh, many moved to Canada from from Russia, and from there, then some migrated to Mexico, including my grandparents. Uh, mm-hmm. No, actually, my grandparents migra- migrated back from Mexico. Is what it was. So my grandparents would also hold Mexican passports, um, or would have, but. Um, uh, yeah, then some, you know, back and forth from Mexico for a few generations, and more recently, um, many have chosen to settle in southwestern Ontario in uh, Leamington, Wheatley, Tilbury area, mm-hmm. and and surrounding as well. Um, and that's uh, that's the community that I pastor. Many many have a lot of um, stories of just really brutal poverty in Mexico. Mm. Uh, many wish they could finish high school. Many wish they could, uh, well, there are some, anyway, uh, some of the older generation wish they could have gone to school at all to learn mm-hmm. how to read and those kinds of things. Right. Yeah. So their uh, educational path was really dictated by poverty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There was, like, like for some of the older gentlemen of our um, congregation there, some of the hardest working men I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the time they were children, they weren't allowed to go to school because their dad needed them to work on a farm somewhere to help take care of the family and help provide mm-hmm. for their, their family for just basic food and shelter and clothing. Mm-hmm. And so they'd never had an opportunity to, uh, to go to, uh, go to school, learn how to read. Others, um, have some schooling, but then had to, um, drop out of school. Uh, usually after grade eight is pretty common. Mm-hmm. Um, then to to go and work and and again help to help to provide for the families yeah yeah so how does uh you know congregational church life fit into uh your context uh the the folks that that come to to church is that uh 
excuse my ignorance in the questions, but is that part of the cultural expectation that everybody should go to church, or is that uh, just like the rest of Canadian culture where it's uh, a often a diminishing property mm. yeah it's there are similarities to the kind of trajectory of canadian culture but for some of it it seems like it's kind of set back 10 or 20 years from the trends that we're seeing in canada so there is still um a general sense that it's good to go to church mm-hmm. and so th- there would be some that start coming um you know because they always thought it was good to go to church and so then they they would start coming but um soon uh, discover there's more to faith than just sitting in a pew. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm curious too about your your own um, pastoral calling. Like, uh, uh, is that something that you knew when you were really young? Is that something that came later in life? How did that all take shape in you? Well, I had a sense early on um, that that ministry was something that was always near and dear to my heart. So as a child of maybe 12 or 13 years old, it was, it was something that, um, I thought about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I had intended for a while to become a teacher and mm-hmm. kind of serve my community by teaching the younger generation in school or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after I graduated high school, um, things kind of took a different turn. I uh, had an opportunity to get involved with a radio ministry in mm-hmm. the community I lived in, uh, in, in the far north of Alberta, and so spent almost five years um, working there full-time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ran a lot like... Um, Can you give us the call letters? Uh, C-I-A-M. C-I-A-M. Radio, yeah. yeah. And uh, the station at the time that I left, I believe it was 18 repeater stations in small little rural areas mm-hmm. in northern Ontario, or sorry, northern Alberta, northern BC, and northern Saskatchewan. Hmm. Pre- predominantly norm, nor, northern Alberta, but um, it, it functioned very similarly to Transworld Radio, where um, we raised support as missionaries in, in an area hmm. uh, to, to help offset the cost of, of running the ministry. And so... Um, yeah, in the first two years of uh, my marriage uh, mm-hmm. with my wife, she served with me there as well until I um, felt it was time to go back to school. So then I attended Providence University College mm-hmm. in Manitoba. And from there, uh, in my last year and kind of praying about, thinking about what was next, I started to, like pastoral ministry had always been kind of on the on my mind as something I would do. Um, but I thought I was far too young for something like that, but then it started to kind of be impressed on my heart, and I re- realized that, you know, sometimes God can use young people too <laughs> yeah. in pastoral ministry. And um, I, I sent out um, letters to four different churches, and I heard back from five, mm-hmm. and New Life Christian Fellowship was the fifth one that I had never um, really heard about them. Uh, they asked if I would consider coming. And mm-hmm. so it kind of caught me so off guard. I, I, at first I dismissed it out of hand for a few moments, but then I just couldn't shake the sense that maybe this was something, something more to this. And yeah, so that's where we, we ended up coming, uh, wow. eight and a half years ago now. So I, uh, there's a, a Christian count counselor in the, uh, Kitchener area, uh, Dick DeGraff. And I once heard him say, uh, that, uh, and this, I don't know if this was original to him or he was quoting somebody else, but he said, uh, in life, every man is on two journeys. The first journey is the journey away from home. And the second journey is the journey back home. And, uh, does that, does that set of footwear, does that fit your feet? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I've certainly um, really appreciated the sense of, of family mm-hmm. um, in, in our congregation where they've treated my wife and I and our children like family. So it's really a sense of, of home in, in that way where they're, they're like brothers and sisters to us. And, and I've faced significant health struggles in the past and my mm-hmm. wife is currently going through some herself mm-hmm. and the kind of support that, that the church offers and, and provides just because that's who they are is, has been a real sense of, of family and home. Um, although they're, you know, in, in the more, um, superficial things, I certainly, 
uh, miss the uh, the rolling hills in Alberta, and <laughs> yeah. the mountains, and 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 of course the people too. But in in terms of the family of God, it's really been um, been beautiful to to see that in our congregation. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm interested in the some of the dynamics between urban and and rural. Yeah. You know, I think that certainly in <clears throat> rural and and small town life. Um, there's often that first journey of leaving home uh, and often heading to the city, whether it's for education or employment, um, in uh, more of an agricultural um, uh, culture like, like uh, you've grown up in. Uh, there may be uh, more uh, incentive to, to not go to the city. I don't know. What, what's... You know, in yeah, it, it's uh, in most rural areas they you know want to retain their youth and and they work hard at this. But when there, if there, especially if there's a growing population, there's just simply not enough jobs for everyone. Yeah, and educational opportunities are really limited, and so um, many many people move away um, mm-hmm. on account of that. Um, and and so there's. Like my, my older brother, for instance, when he graduated, he went to school in Edmonton, and mm-hmm. that's where he stayed. And so he's been there for um, probably half his life now mm-hmm. um, at this point. And it's, um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of, of differences between urban and rural, and, and, but there's also a lot of similarities because we're all human beings, you know? That's it. And so when we're working with people, and especially working with people in poverty, um, so much of it comes back to relationships, you know, and the, the thing is like in, in an urban setting, you can see the poverty a little bit more quickly, um, especially because of the fact that, you know, in rural centers, there's often limited resources. So there's not things like homeless shelters and, um, soup kitchens and those kinds of resources as readily available right and as dependable as they would be in a, in an urban context and so then a lot of the people that are homeless will migrate to to cities we find mm-hmm. um to um you know it's just easier to survive that way right the yeah. the, the resources and and the safety net yeah yeah uh you know thank god for people like your parents they were mm-hmm. a safety net to a lot of people yeah uh people who could have just been absolutely decimated and destroyed, mm. um, found their way through a season. Uh, maybe some of them were able to recover and move forward. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, in, in your book, in, in chapter one, you talk about the poverty in all of us. Um, I was especially curious about the framework of poverty that you borrowed from uh, Professor Bryant L. Myers. Yeah. You said this, you said, The Genesis story depicts four kinds of human relationships and reveals how the root of all poverty can be traced back to the breakdown of those relationships. Myers outlines four kinds of relationships depicted in Genesis. Us and God, us and others, us and ourselves, us and creation. So can you um, open that up for us? Uh, yeah. Th- this idea that um, all poverty is a broken relationship. What's that mean? Yeah. I, when I encountered this idea from Bryant Myers, it was powerful for me uh, personally as well to help understand some of you know, my upbringing and the questions I had of were we rich or were we poor? I knew compared to my classmates, we were certainly poor. And I'd go to the church youth group and there'd be some trip and it cost $30. And I knew that we were struggling to find $30 to pay the phone bill and something like that. And then uh, to think about asking my parents for $30 for something like that, uh, it was like, no, we can't, we can't do that. So I felt really poor. But then, you know, I would see that we'd bring home people and the kind of household rule, always room for one more. But, you know, so it, it, it helps to explain some of that as, as beyond uh, the, the superficial layer of, of poverty that we often think about and the kind mm-hmm. of deeper sense of it. And um, the, the first one that, it, that, that Myers mentions is the broken relationship between us and God. And as, as a pastor and a Christian and a man of faith, uh, that is a very profound one and for me the most important one. Um, however, <laughs> that being said, sometimes when there's a breakdown in any of the other three relationships coming 
to the Lord, as wonderful as that is, may not resolve the material poverty right. if, that, if the source of your material poverty is a different broken relationship. So one of the examples that I give in my book is um, this young woman that my wife and I had the privilege of talking to about her spiritual questions. Um, and we didn't know her very well, but she came to some of our church events and she was curious about um, God and the Bible. Mm-hmm. And she loved hearing about Jesus. And so she um, became a Christian at one point um, while my wife and I were talking to her. And we were extremely happy about this. But this um, young woman was uh, kind of couch surfing and living with friends and um, into some stuff that was really bad for her life, you know. And and the, it turned out that, you know, as, as wonderful as it was for her to come to the Lord, the source of um, the material poverty in her life was a broken relationship with her parents. Hmm. You know, that she was a teenager that had run away from home because of this broken relationship. And in time, someone was able to help mediate between her and her parents, and she was able to go back home, and it, it resolved a lot of things that way. And she was doing much better then, but just because she came to the Lord, it didn't you know, resolve right. the material poverty because the root of it was this broken relationship with her parents. And that's, that's a common thread through many of the people that stayed with our family when mm-hmm. I was growing up too, is there was a broken relationship with their parents that, that led them to, to something. Um, and so that is kind of getting into the second one, which is broken relationships between us and others. And our, our parents is one of those mm-hmm. that becomes pretty devastating when there's a broken relationship there. Um, and, you know, we, we sometimes make light of it in our society as, oh, you've got daddy issues or mommy issues or whatever. And we, we kind of say that in a patronizing way. But yet when those relationships are damaged severely, they have a tremendous impact in our lives and, and often resulting in material poverty. The, the third one that Bryant Myers talks about is a relationship with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and this one is huge. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure I don't need to tell any of your listeners the impact that mental health and mental illness has mm-hmm. on, on people's material well-being. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just a big one. But even beyond things like mental illness, it's when we internalize our poverty. And this, this is a big fancy way of saying when we think we're poor because of who we are, mm-hmm. um, that, that we don't deserve better or we will never have better or that we must be cursed or God hates us or those kinds of things. When we think those negative and destructive thoughts about ourselves, then, then we sometimes um, won't even believe that there can be better. And without a hope and a vision for something better, we won't move in that direction and we'll settle for a lot less than what we, we could or should be striving for um, to, to you know, ease our own suffering and poverty just because we don't think we deserve any better. Right, yeah. And, yeah. and then it, it, it can uh, get uh, pathological yeah. in the sense that Sometimes people in poverty, uh, out of desperation, will uh, believe that if I can just get the money somehow, um, I'll be able to improve my life, or uh, or um, I'll never have anything. So I'm just gonna stay as as low as I can, and uh, that that. That internalizing of, of poverty is is a critical issue, and yeah. but it's not all economic, is it? It's no. it, it's all it's spiritual. Yeah, it is. So what, when Jesus says, "Blessed are the poor," what what how do you how do you read that? I Blessed think, are the poor in yeah. spirit. So often, um, when when we are poor, we're we're aware of our need. You know, mm-hmm. we're aware that we don't have it all together. We're aware that we're not the shining example or the crown jewel of humanity or whatever. <laughs> you know, we we know um, kind of intrinsically that we're broken, you know. And, and there's a piece of brokenness that in, in some form in Christianity, without brokenness, we cannot even receive the gospel in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, and with that being so kind of real for people that are poor or people that are living in poverty, that that sense of of knowing that 
this world is not as it should be, mm -hmm. then you are looking for something to give you hope for, for some kind of future that's not quite so full of suffering. Yeah. Okay. Now, there's a lot of talk uh, about, you know, systemic racism, yeah. um, systemic poverty, uh, sexism, uh, you know, many isms, yep. uh, many uh, things about the corruption of institutions and mm -hmm. corporations. And, and, and we're, we're constantly being bombarded in the culture with uh, how broken everything is. Uh, and perhaps, uh, as followers of Jesus, this needs to be our aha moment mm -hmm. to say, uh, this self-awareness in the culture is a good step towards good news. Yeah. You know, um, in, in chapter five, um, you, uh, gave, uh, through the book, there's, there's some great stories about people. And, and in chapter five, um, you identify that poverty is not just a broken system. Poverty is people with faces and real names. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that it's, it's not just about systemic issues. There are system systemic issues, yeah, but certainly. are we focused on helping individual people or are we focused on changing the system or a bit of both. Um, yeah. What do you think? There, there's an interesting kind of example about that. Now, uh, briefly in the book, I mention um, a man named Chris Arnaud. I think that's how you say his name. And he wrote a book called Dignity. Um, I can't remember the subtitle. Something about seeking respect in back row America. He uses the term back row America. And he was a Wall Street banker. Mm-hmm. And he gave up his, his job at Wall Street, and he was going to spend time in the places where people said, don't go there. Like <laughs> the, the parts of town where they said, stay away from that part of town or stay away from yeah. that city or that community. Just don't go there. That's bad news. Kind of like a, the curiosity of Jesus, I think. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, he's, now, this, he's not a man of faith, though he came to have a great deal of respect for churches um, over the course of this journey that he took. But he writes about this journey of, of getting into the lives of people who are living in poverty. And one of the interesting things that he talks about is how in so many cities, um, the community centers um, often were shut down because of lack of funds, but the, the center of the communities in a functional way was the McDonald's. Huh. And because, you know, people could come there no matter what they looked like. They could use the bathroom. Yeah. You know, they could get something really inexpensive to eat or just have a coffee or a water or whatever and and people would kind of congregate there and meet and 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 then i when i think about that you know he he says you want to know people go to the mcdonald's and just sit there and watch who are the regulars watch who hangs out there all day and then you'll get to know the people who are in need in that community and i thought about some of the um movements in other parts of the country where where i lived and when I lived in Manitoba, there was um, kind of a growing movement among uh, some people who were studying poverty and talking about it to boycott McDonald's. Oh, right. Oh, and no. it yeah. was like a big corporation yeah. and it's, you know, they don't use organic foods or whatever. Like there's yeah. this big list of things and, and yeah. I, I get it. And there's, there's, a, it's not hard to make a case that McDonald's can be a, <laughs> Offensive. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so some, some people that we, we knew, they, they would get really offended if we would suggest that we eat mm -hmm. at McDonald's. And right. um, it, it's one of those things where there's a, there's a problem with big corporations sometimes. Yes, there absolutely is. And there's a, um, and, and, you know, I don't want to, you know, slander McDonald's on your podcast or whatever, but it's, they're not one of our sponsors, yeah. <laughs> but if, if they're listening, but it's one of those, one of those interesting things where when, as I think about this, I, I thought like it really and truly for those who the, the McDonald's is like their community center, you know, it's the playground in the winter for yeah. their kids in the play yeah. place. And it's the place to warm up when it's cold, you know, then to boycott McDonald's 
comes from this radical place of privilege, right? You know, right. where so many people who are actually in need rely on their services, you know. And while I, I understand the reason for that, and I and there there's lots of different boycotts of different businesses, and often for mm -hmm. very very good reasons. But yet it kind of illustrates some of the contrasts with some of the systemic stuff versus some of the relational stuff. Right. That you want to get to know people, go to the McDonald's and hang out for a couple of days. If if you are privileged in some way yeah. you need humility about how you judge the world around you yeah. um, and and uh, and this this sometimes happens in uh, response uh, to the to the most vulnerable of our citizens yes is that uh, people will will have well formulated opinions on what the people need yeah and uh, or um, they're, they're on a campaign, uh, and in the name of, uh, being right, mm -hmm. uh, trample underfoot the people that they weren't even thinking about. Yeah. yeah. And some of my in indigenous friends and oh, yeah. colleagues, um, well, the one I talk about in the book, I believe I even use, use his quote. He says, nothing for us without us. Right. Like, if you're going to make decisions on our behalf, at least include us in this. Yeah. You know, let yeah. us come to the table to talk about what's really going on. Um, yeah. Another story I tell in the book is uh, this one I heard from a missionary named Gordy. He was a pilot in... Uh, is that his first name or his last name? His first name. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I actually can't remember his, his last name. Okay. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is... I'm a bit ashamed of that because I really have a lot of respect for this man. He was a pilot in uh, northern Alberta where I lived. And I attended a prayer meeting with some men. And he came to that prayer meeting. So him and I went to the same prayer meeting for years. And I can't remember his last name. But anyways, he did this trip for a couple of years with a ministry called Mercy Ships where they turned a yeah. cruise ship into a hospital. And mm -hmm. his, his wife was a nurse and he helped out with some of the stuff in the community, you know, digging wells or building stuff or whatever. And when he came back, I was, I was young and curious and I just peppered him with questions. But he was a bit of an older gentleman and had a lot of patience with me, thankfully. So he mm -hmm. told me story after story after story. And one of the stories he told um, now I'm not sure if this was something that Gordy was part of or if it was just something that had happened to people that he had worked with. But they had come to a community and wanted to build a hospital or a school or something. And they walk into the community and they're saying, all right, we're here to build you a hospital or a school. What, do you, what would you like? And they say, build us a soccer field. And they're like, mm. no, 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 I don't, I don't think you understand. Like, you don't have a hospital. You don't have a school. You need those things first. And they said, nope, we don't want those things. Mm. And so they deliberated for a while, and eventually they decided, we're going to build them a soccer field. They, they didn't know what else to do, so, so they did that. But the elders of that community were far wiser than these people who were insisting on You on need a school. hospital, yeah. You need a school, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, what had happened in their community is they had become divided. And there was not much unity within their midst. And so they needed a way to encounter one another in a non-confrontational way to help restore relationships. And so when they built a soccer field, well, now the community comes together around a sport, something outside of their previous conflict. They begin to see the humanity within one another and realize that their conflicts can be transcended and that they can resolve them. And then once that happened, the community built their own school and they built their own hospital. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And like the, the elders of that community, they had seen these things, they built them before, but there wasn't enough unity to maintain these ministries or these, yeah. these buildings. And so it just kind of fell apart until they could heal the divide within these relationships. Mm. Then uh, they, their community was in a bind mm. and the soccer field facilitated that. We, we would do well to learn from that, yeah. you know, to actually consider what people need from, what, what was your uh, indigenous friend, what did he say? Nothing for us without us. Nothing for us without us. Yeah, Kyle Mason was his name. Uh, oh, Kyle Mason. Yeah, I know, I know Kyle. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you talked in the book, too, uh, this fascinated me, this idea of the spirals of negative reinforcement yeah. or the spirals of positive reinforcement and how that's going on in everybody's life. And, yeah. Uh, but uh, um, is, 
what 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 do you mean by the spiral of reinforcement mm -hmm. um, and is that tied to the notion that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer um, or is it the antidote to that um, yes to both um, because there there's a sense in which um, when I talk about spirals of negative reinforcement or spirals of positive reinforcement in some of its more nefarious kind of applications it would be the rich get richer and the poor get poorer through whatever mm -hmm. reasons there's also spirals of of reinforcement that um, that can be rather insidious as well of like um, bullying leads to um, depression anxiety you know social behavioral problems because you're scared of being bullied right. in, in school or whatever so you want to isolate and stay home or whatever so it can lead to these mental illness um, pieces that are or mental health pieces mm -hmm. along with trauma and and pain and then uh, from there you're you're entering worse than you were before once you're bullied at school then the next day you come back and now you're at a worse starting point and then if the bullying bullying continues it so exacerbates spiral, all of that you're circling downward mm -hmm. and and so then it's from because of an outside influence right right um others of it is a lot less nefarious so um things like uh diet for instance so one person uh that i met talked about her journey with depression as an adult and mm -hmm. um, she would um, part of her um, journey out of it was was better diet so what it had been before was um, money excuse me money was lacking and so she um, you know would buy the cheapest foods which is usually your craft dinner or sidekicks yeah. or whatever the unhealthy stuff and then her depression would get worse and she'd get sick more often so she'd miss more work right. less finances meant less ability to buy healthy food and on and on it went it was like a self-reinforcing spiral where every step you took which was logical at the time you don't have money so you buy right. the the like least expensive food you can to fill your belly for that day but that eventually leads to greater sickness more problems with depression and, and a lack of ability to work um, mm -hmm. as much, mm -hmm. you know, because you're taking time off to, to deal with these other things, which leads to less money. And it just kind of reinforces on itself. But then in on the flip side, there's positive spirals of reinforcement where um, as just kind of a really, really simplified example, that's almost painfully simple. Um, like I, I had a boss when I um, between my years of school, I worked in construction and I had a boss, great guy, you know, so this is nothing wrong with anything he was doing here but he had a business and he'd you know put um the materials that we'd be working with for a given uh, job renovating someone's house or whatever he would put them on his company credit card right and then he gets paid he pays off the credit card but as he did this his credit card accumulates points right and then he gets points you get free flights you know you get basically free vacations which are good for your mental health you come yeah. back refreshed ready to work more your business thrives you get more points more free vacations you know on and on it goes and it's a positive spiral or like this so, woman i met right so the positive spiral of uh, work smarter not harder it's yeah that would be one yeah. way of, of putting it yeah or like that uh that, that lady i spoke with when with her journey she would started to make the choice to eat healthy she got but, healthier yeah. missed less work had more money, could better afford to eat healthy. But it's, it's sometimes like, these are just very simple examples, um, but there's like multiple spirals sometimes happening at mm. once that can reinforce each other. So you could have um, a depression, you could have bullying, you could have abuse issues, mm -hmm. um, you could have um, you know family of origin struggles, you could have uh, issues with your employers, Mm -hmm. working you know doing illegal things or whatever like mm -hmm. that's uh sadly common for a lot of people where employers will dock pay for right. illegal reasons and right. that sort of thing <laughs> um one of those um white collar crimes that's sadly rampant in yeah. a lot of places but and then it just kind of um reinforces itself in a negative way but then so too um like one example when my wife started working um her job came with some benefits mm -hmm. and so then it was cheaper for us to buy glasses and prescriptions, but we had more money now. It was easier for us to buy mm -hmm. glasses and prescriptions, but now that it was easier, we didn't have to pay full price. Mm -hmm. I, I was floored 
when I, when I bought these glasses, cause this is pretty recent. So I, I bought these glasses and I was like, I didn't have to save up for a few months for these. This is unreal. I, yeah. I just went to the store and bought new glasses because we could afford it any month, any month because mm. the insurance covered so much of it. And so then it made it affordable and we, my wife was working then. So we had, you know, more income and I could have saved up in a month or two instead of three or four, you know, and it, it was just, it seems like a positive spiral in, in that sense. And, and some of them I, I think are just, they're not, some are nefarious where it's like mm -hmm. imposed from outside and it's, it's the result of evil, but not right. all of them are. Some of them are just neutral, like the results of our own choices, right, for instance. Right. So if we pull that into the paradigm that Myers presents mm -hmm. about poverty being a broken relationship, you know, there's, there's this um, sense in, may, may, is that one maybe more about the relationship to ourself? Mm -hmm. uh, often and other people and other people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, and, and our environment well, yeah, as yeah. well too, I would say, um, uh, my wife worked in a community in Northwestern Ontario mm -hmm. and that community had, uh, as a result of uncontrolled industrial processes has had mercury dumped into a waterway mm. and the community she lived in was downstream from the, the factory that did that. And this is all well documented in the news. Um, yeah. the community's grassy narrows if people yeah. want to look it up, yeah. but it's, um, there, there, it created a lot of health issues there, you know? And so you, you have neurological problems from mercury poisoning. It's going to lead to, you know, different spirals that reinforce each other that make life more difficult for people. Right. You know, and so the then broken relationship with creation. Yeah. That creates this incredible poverty. Yeah. Yeah. In your book on page 77, you quote Henry Nowen mm. and uh, you had me at Henry. There we go. <laughs> um, but there's this quote from Henry Nowen I want to want you to talk about. Um, this is, um, uh, dealing with uh, the issues that arise with power. And, mm -hmm. and uh, Nowen says, the long painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. One thing is clear to me, the temptation of power is greatest when intimacy is a threat. Much Christian leadership is exercised by people who do not know how to develop healthy, intimate relationships and have opted for power and control instead. Many Christian empire builders have been people unable to give and receive love. Hmm. I read that. Wow. <laughs> Unable to give and receive love. It's, it's this temptation that faces us, the, temp, the tension between empire and shalom. Mm -hmm. which, which way are we going to have it? Yeah. And uh, do you think that, you know, in our current age of, you know, building a brand and mm. social media presence and writing books and <laughs> having a podcast and, and creating a platform. Yeah. Does this somehow set us up once again to build many, many empires? And do we do so at the peril of building intimacy? Um, I, uh, and I'm not... Uh, pointing that finger at you, I'm, I'm asking the question for myself, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, what, what Henry seems to be saying here is that you can miss the shalom of God, the, yeah. the plan, the peace, the perfection of what God has, um, and get tempted to build an empire instead. Yeah. And, you know, I asked those same questions of myself even before I started writing the book. It was like, is this that is this just that empire building or you know i wanted to make sure i went into it without that kind of um motive or whatever and 
I, I then I get emails from the publisher about building your brand and all of that, and I'm just, <laughs> oh, I you know I I don't want to speak ill of my publisher because I'm very very grateful for them. Yeah. However, it, there there there's a tension certainly that's yeah. there between that that, and I don't think that it, it there's it's necessarily inherently wrong to you know. Um, write a book or have a podcast. I think there's yeah. actually a lot of good in that, certainly. But it's, I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about the difference between seeking empire and seeking shalom. And um, which is one of the reasons in, um, I believe it was chapter five, where I talk about the, the stories of people, you know, with faces and names. Um, that that this is this is something that's not just about look how smart I am or whatever. It's it's stories about you know look at what real people are dealing with. Look at what so many people, and you, you know we talk about the one percent or whatever. Um, as, and and there's there's a, a truth in that the the majority of people in the world deal with the kind of thing I talk about in this book. Deal with poverty. That's most people. Mm-hmm. That's sadly normal. Yeah. If we would talk about the majority. And so then it's, it's something that we would do well to pay attention to beyond issues, but to, to realize this has a human element to it. And, mm. and whenever there's a human element, another thing that comes to mind with this is when we, when we try to build something, you can achieve with fear what should be done with love. Hmm. And, and this, you see it in, in broken homes where, you know, someone wants the respect of their family and they are failing to achieve it through, through love because maybe they don't know how to love properly or how to receive love properly. And so then they resort to fear to, to get the outward actions of respect. Um, politicians do the same thing, you know. If you can't gain the love of your people, then you, you know... <laughs> control them through other means, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that's one of those things that I, I think we, whoever of us is, is in the helping professions or seeking to make a difference that we don't mix those two up because you can get the outward results through fear, but that is no substitute for love. And I'd, I'd rather see someone take two steps in love than a hundred in fear. Mm-hmm. You know, the outward appearance might look like a failure in comparison, but before the Lord, you're, uh, you know, 102 steps ahead of the other guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, final, final bit here. Yeah. Um, how can people get a copy of your book, Faithful and Small Things, How to Serve the Needy When You're One of Them? And uh, also um, uh, tell us a little bit about Pavology. Yeah. Um, you can get my book uh, on Amazon or order it through Indigo um, or Barnes & Noble or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, also at the Herald Press website, you can get it from there as well. And they've got links to most of the most, most, of the, uh, most popular retailers out there. I'll, I'll put links in okay. the show notes, yeah. And uh, it's on Audible as well as an audiobook. For people who like that, do you get to read your own book? I did. Um, yeah. Actually, I insisted on it. Oh, um, good. Yeah, um, given that I was in radio, I, I felt like it would be a shame. Morgan Freeman wasn't available, so you <laughs> thought I'll do it myself. Well, I, I turned him down. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 no, I, uh, I I wanted to read it in my own voice, and it's one of maybe a little bit selfish in some ways. I've always wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, and I enjoy well, you, doing you that. You also so. have radio background, yeah. so you're comfortable with your voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was it was quite a bit of fun. Although because we live in in rural area, little uh, background note: I had to pause my recording one time because my chickens were right outside my window, and <laughs> and I had to go get some uh, some feed corn and lure them away to the backyard and then oh, dump it back that... there so I could go back to recording. <laughs> I would have just added to the ambience. <laughs> you reading, you know, pour, ripping your soul open and bleeding and chickens in the background. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then uh, as far as Pavology goes, um, I, I, I came up with a name because I was the you know, predominant theme of it is poverty and theology. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, let's mash those words together. Pavology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the nice thing about inventing a word is if you Google it, it's the only thing that comes up. Um, hey. So that works. <laughs> also, uh, Pavology.com. You can access the series. If anyone has um, access to Right Now Media as well, mm-hmm. it's on there. Okay. And so you can... Uh, there's also a, uh, a free, I mean, the whole series is free. It's on YouTube. It's on 
uh, pavology.com. There's links to the YouTube videos. You mm -hmm. can download it there too, the MP4s, mm -hmm. um, for free. Um, we're a small church, and so we love resources that you know are made available to those who don't have resources. Yeah, uh, so and, we did the same thing. Oh, and you got a who's who uh, of social justice on... Uh, Shane Claiborne and Ron Sider are on there. Um, they're, well, Kyle, Kyle Mason, who I mentioned, yeah, yeah. Um, as, as well as uh, a professor from Canadian Mennonite University, Ray Vanderzag. Uh, he was a fantastic mm. interview. He, he teaches international development at CMU. And so um, just wonderful wisdom from him um, as well. There's uh, uh, Linda Chamain from Saskatoon, who runs an inner city outreach there mm -hmm. um, called The Bridge, I believe it was. And, oh, man, there's like so a dozen people or more. So it's a great resource yeah. for uh, small groups, uh, mm -hmm. for churches that are saying hey how can we better position ourselves yeah. in relationship to to people and understanding yeah. poverty our own and yeah. that of our neighbors and and for churches uh there's been a number of churches that have used it as a resource for their their missions trips when they want to go somewhere mm -hmm. to serve in missions trips that they go through it together before they go to help better prepare them so they can talk through some of the conversations about what to expect and how to avoid doing more harm than good and that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Well, Kevin, uh, I, uh, just have so appreciated, uh, your book and your insights and, and who you. you are. And, uh, um, one of the reasons that I, uh, continue to do this podcast, uh, with regularity is, uh, I just love seeing what God is at work doing in our country. Mm. And, um, uh, you, you, uh, you, you didn't, uh, you didn't uh, fit in as an urban ministry worker, but you sure have the ethos mm. and, um, you know, and, uh, and, and, and you said something really important too, that, you know, when you really break it down, the difference between, between rural and urban, the bottom line is people are people mm. yeah. wherever you find them. Yeah. And uh, you just happen to find a lot more of them congregated in the city. Yeah. And uh, so thanks so much uh, for uh, being on. And uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to do this again. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin Aaron Weeb and uh, his book, Faithful in Small Things. I have a copy that uh, I'm going to make available. We're going to have a contest. Uh, if you would go to the Facebook page for Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. I've listed all of the episodes that we've aired uh, from season one and season two, and uh, there's a contest there if you are able to pick uh, the top most listened to episode in 2021, uh, as well as uh, the second and third uh, most listened to. The person who scores the highest uh, will win a copy of Kevin's book. So uh, go to the Facebook page now and uh, do that. The uh, contest won't be on for too long. So our next guest is uh, somebody I work with uh, who lives uh, in Montreal and works in Montreal, Gary Connors. Gary is the uh, Mission Canada um, Quebec and Francophone Canada director. You know, Quebec is uh, the largest mission field in the Western Hemisphere. It is uh, the least uh, uh, Christianized place, uh, and which is uh, odd because historically in Canada, Quebec um, was largely Catholic, uh, but today uh, probably only about 5% of um, Catholics attend church in Quebec, and less than 1% uh, of Christians in Quebec uh, would be uh, belonging to an evangelical church. So um, a lot of uh, interesting things. Uh, one of the things Gary does is he's the uh, director for Fit for M, uh, bringing English Canadians uh, to Quebec involving them in intensive French language training in preparation uh, for uh, ministry uh, in French in within Quebec. And uh, so we'll hear a lot about that. Um, 
next time we get together on this podcast. So until that time, you know who I am and you're listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.